This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians in the first chapter, at least we'll be coming there early on in our consideration of God's Word this morning. Now as we come again, considering our spiritual blessings in Christ, remember that's what Ephesians 1 begins with, uh, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Just a a few questions to set the stage for our consideration. Firstly this, is it okay for us to ignore or even suppress any clear and repeated emphasis in the Bible? Should any Christian find fault with that which reveals the glory of God, especially his sovereignty, and his grace. Could we object to the fact that we are saved entirely by God's grace? Absolutely nothing in us. Another question. Dare we argue against God's right to do his will, to fulfill his eternal purpose as he deems proper? Another question, does it make sense for us to despise or dislike any of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ? Does that make any sense? Is that which emphasizes God's love to us and which then should promote our love to him, is is that a bad thing? Well, put this way, the answer to all of these questions is a clear, resounding, well, no, no, no. We cherish such matters as these, that which shows God's glory, that uh, which causes us to see his love and to love him more, and the like. And yet, can I say that many Christians have ignored or have found fault or objected or argued against or despised, etc., that which we do have in Scripture. Well, how? In what ways? Well, every time someone finds fault with the Bible's teaching about election, God's choice of sinners before the foundation of the world, this is the kind of stuff that they are doing, whether they recognize it or not. Now, the fact that God chose specific sinners for salvation, again, before time began, well, that is clearly taught in Scripture. We won't take time to trace it out. We looked at that last Lord's Day, but even right here in Ephesians chapter 1, notice uh, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, and the first listed, which is first chronologically, I guess we could say, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good purpose of his 
will. We uh, could look at Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, God be thanked that from the beginning he chose you for salvation. Or Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 and how uh, we have been called with this uh, holy, we've been saved by this holy calling and grace that God gave us in Christ before uh, time began. And other verses as well. Uh, look among you, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, why not? Well, God has chosen the foolish, etc. there in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, it is most certainly a doctrine that reveals God's glory, his sovereignty to do as he will, his grace to sinners like us. And the point of this truth, as presented in Scripture, is to underscore just that. That our salvation is entirely of grace, entirely undeserved, due to nothing in us, not some foreseen desire or willingness or anything. No. And most certainly, God has the right then to do his will in all spheres. He rules over the hosts of heaven, over the inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand. What are you doing? Uh, he works all things according to the counsel of his will right here in Ephesians chapter 1. And, and further, Ephesians 1, uh, God's choice uh, of us, it is one of those, as we've seen, spiritual blessings for which he is to be praised because that's what's going on here. God is being praised for having chosen us as well as all these other blessings that he chose to give us. And certainly then this truth should cause us to respond as the Apostle John, we love him. Because he first loved us. Who can find fault with the truth, with the teaching in Scripture uh, that accomplishes and underscores all of these things? And therefore, how tragic it is that any of the Lord's people should not wholeheartedly embrace what we call the doctrine of election, that any would find fault or would object to God's choice of sinners before time began. And yet the fact is, there are several questions and objections that are raised against this teaching of Scripture. In fact, I think with at least some of us, maybe most, we can trace in our own history when we first heard this. Uh, we kicked against it and didn't like it and so forth. Well, we want to look at some of these objections. We've already looked at well, I suppose what is considered the major argument against it. Again, everyone must admit that the Bible teaches God's choice of particular sinners for salvation. And as I pointed out last week, the real point of debate is the basis of that choice. Why would God choose only some? Or for that matter, why would God choose any? And you'll recall that people have appealed to 1 Peter 1, 2, uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, or Romans 8, uh, 29, uh, whom he foreknew, he did also predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. So they say, well, God's foreknowledge. That is, God looked down through the portals of time, and he saw who would at least have some desire or willingness or would choose Christ or choose salvation or whatever the case may be. He looked down, and he saw something in these that they would choose him. Therefore, before the foundation of the world, he chose them. Well, we considered a number of problems uh, with that view of the subject, why it is really not at all correct, uh, because these verses 
foreknowledge, foreknew. It's not talking about what he foreknew, but whom. And we saw even when it's used of our Lord Jesus, it has to do with God's special regard for persons. First uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 20, 21, it's used of Christ himself was foreknown or foreordained. And this view that, well, God looks down, he saw that man would do something, wiggle his pinky or whatever, well, that assumes that man has the ability in and of himself to believe or to respond on his own. That's simply not true. And furthermore, it puts emphasis not on God's choice, but man's. Ultimately, God's choice is meaningless. It's man. That's what really, uh, has. so it robs the idea of election uh, entirely of its meaning. But then, and especially, that view contradicts what we do have in Scripture. Why? Well, all we're told as to the basis of God's choice of sinners is that it's according to his will. Even here in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, it's God himself who predestined, uh, verse 6, uh, according to uh, His good, the good pleasure of his will. And then verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Or verse 11, uh, in him we also have obtained inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or it's his purpose and grace given us in Christ before time began. Second Timothy 1, 9. Or the Lord Jesus, you've revealed these things to babe and blinded the the wise and prudent and even so father seemed good in your sight it was according to your uh, purpose and we can see that traced out romans 8 and 9 and 11 so the point is the objection well now it's not really that god did the choosing he looked down he saw that we would choose and therefore he chose us uh, that doesn't fit the use of the word nor does it even make sense but there are other objections and uh, there are often troubling questions regarding this whole matter of God's choice of sinners. And because it is an important matter, we now come back to it. I don't intend to give an exhaustive treatment to try and answer or address every possible objection. Uh, but there are some things that we should consider. And all we're doing is really just considering enough to aid us, not only in our understanding, but also to aid uh, others in, in helping them in their understanding of these things that show forth the grace, the sovereign grace of God. So, firstly, in our consideration now, it's objected if God chooses only some, not all, does that not make God unfair? He's not treating everybody equally. Is that not unfair? And a related question, that makes God a respecter of persons, doesn't it? He's respecting one person over another. He's a respecter of person. Doesn't this teaching make him that? Well, let me say and emphasize as much as I can. Firstly, God is not unfair, and nor is he a respecter of persons. The Bible affirms that repeatedly. Uh, even Abraham, uh, will not God, the judge of all the earth, do right? He will. He will do right. He is the righteous judge. Or Acts 10.34, there's no partiality with him. Or even here in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, we read words with reference to the uh, slaves. 
the mas you masters do the same thing uh, to them, that is, treat them properly, uh, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality, no respecting of persons with him. The fact that you're a master, he's a slave, that doesn't impress God. That God doesn't deal with people. So the same Bible, even in the same book, in which we're told about God choosing sinners before the foundation of the world, goes on to say, but there's no partiality and there's no contradiction. Here's the point. If man desired to be chosen, if we natively deserved any good from God at all, if we deserved for God to choose us, and yet it's withheld from us, well, then it could be argued that yet yeah, God was unfair because he chose only some. But the fact is, man deserves nothing but God's wrath. We are all fallen in Adam, and we've amended it by our own sin. If we all get what we deserve, then we get eternal punishment. All must perish. And instead of being troubled that God chose only some, we should rather marvel that God would choose any. Election is on the basis of his mercy and grace, not justice, not what is deserved. Therefore, he's not unjust. There is no injustice in not choosing all. Further, if sinners wanted to know God, if they really desired a saving relationship with him, and yet were not chosen. Well, would that not be problematic? I mean, come on, they wanted God, but he didn't want them. Therefore, he rejected them. Oh, but wait a minute. Is that the case with any? With any? No, sinners in their native state, they don't want God. They don't seek God. Uh, Psalm 10.4, God's not in their thoughts. Or Job 21, 14, they say to God, depart from us. We don't desire a knowledge of man. Leave us, isn't that the way of men in his native state? Leave me alone, just I want to be left alone in my sin. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind's hostile against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither do you get, there's hostility there. And furthermore, Romans 3, 11, there's none that seeks after God. They don't. They don't. Well, who can fault God? Who can find fault with God for not choosing those who didn't want anything to do with him? Right? Further, when we're told that God is no respecter of persons, we must understand what that means to be a respecter of persons. It means to give special treatment based on something in or about man. So, for instance, this master is told, don't think that because you're the master, and he's just a lowly slave, that God has special treatment of you because of, you know, something in you. No, that would be a respecter of persons. But election is election of grace. That's not God respecting persons. He shows no partiality based on something in man. Well, he's a good guy, and he's a... No. It's all Grace. I guess you could say the wrong view of foreknowledge. Oh, God looks down and saw you would do this, and therefore he chose. That's kind of the respecting of persons, I guess we could say. But further, for God to choose some, or any, or none, it's not unjust 
Because God has the right to do his will. You remember uh, the parable of the landowner and he has these servants and he sent them out and uh, he gave some, you know, they agreed to work for a denarii, I think it was, and then all the way down to those who went out the last hour of the day and they were given the same amount. And, and those who went out and worked all day and the sun said, wait a minute, you gave him the same thing. That's not fair. And the Lord Jesus in that parable, speaking as the landowner said, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? And the whole logic is, well, yeah, he's the owner. He can do what he wishes. It's his money. Well, that's the whole point. God's the landowner, and he has the right to do. Or uh, Romans chapter 9 refers to God as the potter. Can a lump of clay say, why did you make me this way? Why did you do? Well, no. Please come to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. In, whole, in the whole connection of God choosing sinners, of doctrine of election, God's sovereign grace. Verse 14, this is having said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. God chose Jacob, not Esau. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. It's his sovereign prerogative. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Well, it's in that connection uh, that uh, we read verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who is resisted? His will. Back up verse 6. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Therefore you'll say, why does he find fault? Who's resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? The idea, by the way, could your view of election get this objection? Well, who's resisted his will then? He chose, those were saved, and these he didn't chose, they're not saved, and, and, well, what's the problem? If this objection could not be raised to your view of the Bible's teaching on election, you don't have Paul's view, because he foresaw this is a problem. Well, if God's will is done, then why find fault? Well, that brings to another question. So we've seen... Uh, is God unrighteous, unfair? No, absolutely not. Men deserve nothing but hell. But then another question is sometimes raised or objection. Yeah, but what about man's, quote, free moral agency? Doesn't the doctrine of election violate man's free will and make him more of a, a robot? Well, to say that salvation is based primarily on man's choice, not God's, does that not rob God of his free will? I think it was A.W. Tozer in his little book on the attributes of God, Knowledge of the Holy, said it's impossible that there should be two free wills in the universe because eventually they'll collide and one will have to give way to the other. Well, God rules over the hosts of heaven, over the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? All my counsel I will do, Isaiah 46.10 and Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of his will. No, God is sovereign. But we must clarify our terms when we speak of man's, quote, free will. If the question is this, 
Is man free to choose salvation if he so wills? Is man free to choose salvation if he so wills? And in that sense, his will is free. Man is not held back by God. Well, he would choose to be saved, but God won't let him. He would choose to come, but God, no, absolutely not. In fact, what we find is God invites, God commands sinners to come. No, it's not God who is keeping sinners back. No, you cannot come. I will not let you come. No. It's their own will that keeps them back. As Jesus said in John 5.40, some religious people, you will not come to me that you might have life. Or Romans 3.11, there's none who seek after God. So it's not that God's holding with their will keeps them from coming. Man's will is free from God coercing or God saying you can't come. But man's will is not free from his own sin. Man wills only what is consistent with his depraved heart and mind. And left to choose what he wants, will one whose carnal mind is hostile against God then choose God? Will he? The will is the servant, not the master. Let me illustrate a silly illustration uh, I've used in the past. Uh, I'm one who has no interest in eating liver. Okay. My mother used to use liver as a punishment. You know, my brother and I, what did you do? I don't know, what did you do? All right, we're having liver tonight because you did such and such. Right? So I grew up with a real aversion. I mean, uh, the texture of it and trying to just didn't like it. So here I am. I'm going to, say, Cracker Barrel. And I think they might have livered onions at least at times on their menu. And I sit down, and here I'm looking at their menu, and suddenly my will springs up and says, Liver it is! We're having liver today! Is that going to happen? Well, my will is not the leading proponent. It's the servant of my mind, my heart, my likes, and my dislikes, right? Therefore, my will is not going to say, No, I'm going to have what you don't really want. It's subject to everything else. Okay, let's take man and his depravity. He's got a carnal mind that's hostile against God, hating God. And now suddenly his will is going to spring up and say, I choose God. I'm going to have God. No, the will is subject to that carnal mind that hates God. And therefore the will, man's will is not free from his own sin and depravity. And that's what keeps him from coming to Christ. Though the offer is there and genuine, yet no. But even beyond that, man's will is not free from the cruel tyranny of the devil. Paul refers in 2 Timothy 2 about man being taken captive at Satan's will. 1 John 5.19, we are of God, those who are saved, redeemed, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Or Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Satan is described as the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Some of you are old enough to remember that comedian Flip Wilson. Right? The devil made me do it. 
Right? You remember that? Well, there's a sense in which that's not, by the way, to release us from any responsibility, but there's a sense in which that's right. He's the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Does man's will have power to overthrow the reign of Satan? To cast off Satan's cruel tyranny? I know you won't let me come to Christ. That He's blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So man can say to Satan, be gone. I will do what I want to do. No. He's not only a slave, a willing slave of his own sin, but he's also enslaved by Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So the point is, left to himself, man will not will to be saved. If God didn't choose, no one would. Now that does not mean that God then saves sinners against their will. That needs to be underscored. Uh, Rather, God is wise and gracious and powerful enough to make sinners willing. Uh, He works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Or when he says in John 6, no man... Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. And then the very next thing, uh, and they shall all be taught of God. That is to say, it's God himself who works inwardly and inclines the heart. Not saving sinners against their will, but making them willing. So, we've seen a couple of the objections. One is, isn't God unfair? Well, no, he's not. Or the other one, uh, well, what about man's free will? But, Another one that sometimes, well, wait a minute, you talk about election and God choosing some, but doesn't the Bible say, whosoever will? I mean, uh, Revelation 22, as we're coming to the end of the book of Revelation, uh, whoever will, let him come. Or that well-known John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting. What about that word, whoever? What do you say to that? We say, amen. That's blessedly true. The problem is, as we've already indicated, left to themselves, people won't. They won't come to Christ. In fact, Jesus said on that very occasion of speaking John 3, 16, uh, that you've got those who will not come because they love their darkness and they hate the light. They hate him who is the light. And they don't want Christ. Therefore, the whoever, he says, yeah, that's very clearly, but they won't come. They don't want to come. Jesus could say in John 3 earlier about unless one is born from above, uh, unless uh, that new birth, he cannot see or enter the kingdom. But please understand, the offer to whosoever is genuine. Whoever will may come. God himself declares genuine concern for sinners. Ezekiel 18, 31, 32. Cast off your idols, your wickedness. Get a new heart. For I, because I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and live. God says that to wicked people. But then it goes beyond that when you come later, Ezekiel 33, 11, where God again says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and live. And then God sets into pleading with sinners. Turn. Turn. 
why will you die? You got that? God's saying, no pleasure in the death. Rather, they turn and then pleads, turn, turn. Don't die, live. Flee to Christ. Or you've got Romans 10, 21, used uh, of uh, Israel, but it pictures God as all day long pleading. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. The very idea of a tender pleading. And you remember 2 Corinthians 5, 20, where Paul says, we're ambassadors for Christ as though uh, God were pleading through us. We urge you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's a pleading with sinners. That's a, a very genuine concern. Uh, a, a sincere offer of salvation. Now, it's not uncommon, again, for those who want to object to the doctrine of election to to appeal to at least part of 2 Peter 3.9. Well, it says God's not willing and should perish. All should come to repentance. You're familiar with that passage? Well, that's only part of the verse, but, but let's come there. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. <clears throat> the text is actually especially speaking of the beloved, and it's given as a reason for the delay of Christ's return. That's what's being addressed. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. That is, verse 1, the beloved. Verse 8, the beloved. Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And the idea of God is long-suffering. Christ has not yet come. Because there are those who will be saved, and he is long-suffering toward the beloved, the us. But, even so, that makes that fits the context. Many who believe what the Bible says of God's choice of sinners would say this speaks truly of all. Let me give you a quote uh, by a, a man who's at least rumored to have been a Calvinist. His name is John Calvin. Uh, so it might be that he was a Calvinist, right? He says this on this very verse. So wonderful is God's love towards mankind that he would have them all be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. That's Calvin. No contradiction. Well, no matter how you want to understand 2 Peter 3.9, though I think, with all due respect to John Calvin, uh, I, I think the context has, if it's the case of Christ hasn't come yet because there are those who will be saved, well, there will always be those who will not be saved. So that means he will never come, right? No, it makes more sense that, why does he come? Well, because there are still those. Whatever day the Lord saved you, had Christ come the day before, you obviously would not have been saved, right? So he Delayed, he's long-suffering until those who will be saved are saved. That fits the context. But no matter how you want to understand 2 Peter 3.9, Scripture does reveal a sincere willingness in God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather they turn and live. And that being so, why are not all saved then? Why are not all chosen? Well, all we're told is that he chose according to the counsel or good pleasure of his will. Well, how does this all fit together? God's sincere willingness and yet choosing only some. Well, that's a very good question for which 
We've no ready answer. All we can say is that both of these matters are revealed by God in his word, and we dare not deny either. And we can also say, don't be surprised if there are some truths about God that are beyond us. His greatness is unsearchable. His ways past finding out. And again, an illustration I've used in the past, if I take a little teacup down to Myrtle Beach, and I'm not able to fit the entirety of the Atlantic Ocean in my little teacup, I don't come away horribly shocked. I thought for sure I could get that whole ocean in this teacup. Well, nor am I shocked if I can't get the infinite God all poured into my little teacup brain and fully fathom everything about it. Well, this very naturally leads to another related question. Why evangelize? If God chose those who would be saved, and only these will be saved, why bother with evangelism then? Well, first, let me say that we must understand that the number was fixed and determined as to who would be saved before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8, uh, it talks about those who will marvel whose names were not written in the book of the life of the Lamb before the foundation of the world. So, as I pointed out, I think, last week, the, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, those names were written before the foundation of the world. However they got there, Okay. Regardless, whether it's God looked down through the portals of time and saw or whatever else, however those names got there in the Lamb's Book of Life, that number is a fixed number before the foundation of the world. Therefore, here I am, I'm trying to witness to this guy. If his name was not there from before the foundation of the world, no matter what I say or do, I can't convert him. He's not going to get saved. That's it. Whatever view one may have of election and foreknowledge and the like, whatever one uh, thinks about that, at least we all have to agree that that number is fixed, right? Lands Book of Life or the Foundation of the World. We got that. No new names written down in glory. Therefore, the question is, why should any of us evangelize? Whether you're Calvinist or men, it doesn't matter. I mean, if the number's fixed, why bother evangelizing them? It's there from the foundation of the world. Well, firstly, this, we must do so, engage in evangelism, because we're commanded to do so. And whether I understand why or don't understand why, that's not the issue. I've got my marching orders. What has God said? Further, we declare the gospel of Christ so as to glorify God. The Apostle Paul put it well in over in 2 Corinthians and, and chapter 2. He's talking about taking the gospel to sinners, he recognizes that there are those who uh, will not hear, who despise the gospel of Christ. And yet, verses 15 and 16 of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. The point is, whether they will hear the gospel or not, 
God is still glorified. It's still an aroma before him. And therefore, why evangelize it? Well, because this is a way for our glorifying God. But also, this is a means that God himself has chosen to use in the salvation of all who will be saved. Call it salvation of the elect or whatever you want. Uh, man in his wisdom did not know God. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Therefore, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching or the message preached to save those who believe. Or Romans 10, 14, how shall they hear? Uh, how, uh, how shall they call on him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Or the Apostle Paul, uh, when he writes to Timothy about the whole matter of preaching, and he talks about how this had been, uh, truth had been entrusted to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but he has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So the point is, it's God himself who has appointed the preaching of the gospel. Come to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We saw it last week. Notice verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So he chose you. He also chose or appointed the means by which you would be saved. It would be by this inward operation of the Holy Spirit, separating us from our native state and setting us apart to God, the new birth. And that would be wrought especially by the word, as the word is heard and believed. And therefore, he says, verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He chose you from the beginning, through sanctification, that inward work of the Spirit, and your own belief in the truth, and therefore in time God effectually drew you. We'll come to effectual calling in a future study. God effectually drew you to Christ by our gospel. Uh, come to First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians in chapter 1. You'll recall what we have there. I did look at it, I think, last Lord's Day. Verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God... For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. We know you're elect because the gospel came to you with power and the Holy Spirit. And no man can come except the Father who sent me draws him. And he draws by that teaching through the word being driven home by the Holy Spirit. Or of his own will, he brought us forth, begat us, gave us the new birth. By the word of God. God's word doesn't return to him void. It accomplishes that which he's purposed. Isaiah 55, 11. And brethren, that's great encouragement, isn't it? This is God's doing. Just like he commanded light to shine into darkness. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he commanded light to shine into our darkness. 
and calls us to see uh, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Notice how Paul was encouraged with the truth of electing grace in Acts 18. Here in Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth, and the storm clouds were again gathering of persecution. And it seems that the Apostle Paul was keeping silent, or at least tempted to. Verse 9 of Acts 18, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, special revelation. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now there were already conversions. But our Lord is saying, no, there are yet more to be saved. I have many people in this city. They will be saved. How? Well, by the hearing of the gospel. But because of that, Paul, don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Get on speaking this gospel. And Paul got the point, And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And of course, there were many more conversions. Paul refers to it as, I sowed another water, Apollos water, but God was giving the increase. The gospel went forth, it was heard, and God himself saved sinners. Or notice Paul's language over in 2 Timothy and chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I do believe I made reference to this last Lord's Day, but it's worth looking at again. Here the apostle Paul in prison, writing his last letter to Timothy, as far as we know, his last letter. Verse 8, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. They will obtain that through the word held forth. God blessing his word to their salvation. But notice his confidence. I'm not, uh, 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 the word of God's not changed. I'm in chains, but I'm enduring all things. I'm confident the word of God's not changed. The elect will indeed be saved regardless. This is the means that God uses. Why evangelize? Well, this is the means that God uses to save sinners. And what encouragement. You know, if it was simply, if evangelism was simply a battle of the wills, it's all up to us. I've got to somehow uh, persuade this guy. And it's up to me and his total depravity to fight this thing out. Or here, this guy who's held bound by Satan. And I have to somehow out-talk Satan here and persuade him. If that's what salvation, what evangelism is, then what's the use? What's the use? His will is held, his heart is held in sin and by Satan. We've no hope of success. It's a hopeless. Man can't be saved. But if God is able, oh, and he is, if it rests ultimately on God, one sows and other waters, but God gives the increase. Then, brethren, we're as warranted as was the Apostle Paul to have that kind of confidence. No, God saves. 
here's the gospel. Even if I'm chained, he sends forth his word and it accomplishes his purpose. And therefore your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Rather, it's a sweet aroma to God, no matter what they do with their gospel that is heard. So the point is, rather than robbing uh, uh, impetus to evangelize, the fact of God's choice of sinners before time should encourage evangelism. Here is the means that God uses and God will use. And who knows how he will use. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. It should cause us to declare this glorious gospel in a spirit of expectation. Who knows what the Lord is apt to do? Well, that brings you to a fifth question. Okay, this is all well and good. The Bible talks about election. But does it really matter? We're talking about something that happened before time began. Uh, and this doctrine is, 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 can be quite divisive. It spawned a, a lot of arguments between uh, the Lord's people. And surely there is that about election, which is hard to understand. I mean, aren't we better off just kind of leave this in the closet? Let's not be talking about this. Let's just, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? Well, since God has revealed it in his word, even with a strong repeated emphasis, uh, we have to say, yeah, it's not unimportant. This truth is to be known. In fact, it's to have practical implications in the lives of God's people. And remember, these things were not written just to theologues. It was written to all of the Lord's people. We noted a couple of matters already uh, last Lord's Day. Uh, do you recall them, the practical implications of uh, election? Some of the lessons it's designed to teach or should impress upon us? Firstly, this, as we've seen, it emphasizes God's grace. The salvation is entirely undeserved. It's the election of grace. This should be driven home to our hearts. It chosen not for good in me. Nothing in me. It was all God. Also, it's revealed that we might see the glory of God and worship him. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. How about this? He chose us in Christ before. That's given as part of a statement of praise. Or Second Thessalonians. God be thanked that he chose you for salvation from the beginning. For we are a chosen generation to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we should love him who first loved us. Those are all practical applications of the doctrine of election. But we mustn't overlook there are other ways in which the Bible applies this glorious truth to us, making it very relevant even to our day-to-day life. This truth was revealed for the comfort and the assurance of God's people. Please come again to 2 Timothy in chapter 1, where Paul is referring of this in writing to Timothy. He's telling Timothy not to be ashamed. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. But wait, Paul, I mean, these are sufferings. And I, I, I don't... It looks like they're triumphing over us, and I, I, I've 
Timothy being a timid man, maybe a little bit reluctant. But notice, share with me the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Here's God's purpose. Here's God's grace. Therefore, Timothy, don't be shy holding back. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid of suffering. It's in God's purpose. Here's reason to stand strong and confident, to be encouraged, to be consoled. He saved us according to his own purpose, according to his immeasurable grace. Well, therefore, stand, Timothy. It's in the reality of these things, not ashamed, to glory in this gospel. Do to me what you will. Here's God's purpose, and by the way, here's God's grace to a sinner like me. See how it's designed to encourage. We can see the same thing. The Lord Jesus twice in that uh, all of it discourse refers to his people as the elect. About uh, You've got all these deceivers. They'll be so slick, if possible, they would deceive the very elect. Well, it's not possible. That's why he's saying that. They're the elect. They're chosen. Or he talks of how uh, the uh, elect, the times will be shortened, that providence will be controlled for the sake of the elect whom God has chosen, Mark 13, 20. Or at last, he goes and gathers his elect from all uh, the four winds, from all the four corners, as it were. All of the elect. Jesus keeps saying that. When he's talking about hard times and persecution are going to come, yet here, the elect will not be deceived, they will not be overwhelmed, they will all be gathered. He's encouraging his people. And that is reason to keep watching, keep looking, to remain faithful. Or how about in this one? Uh, Romans 8.33 Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's the one who declares us righteous. And he did so by choice. We are his elect. Who can bring a charge to somehow thwart God's uh, God's justification or God's purpose for us? Well, no one. You see, the word elect there is very specific, giving us consolation. Notwithstanding our struggles with remaining sin, notwithstanding Satan, the accuser of the brethren, we have this assurance. Justified in Christ, who can bring a charge and make it stick against God's elect if he chose us in Christ? Well, what struggles do you face? What discouragements are yours? What are your fears, Christian? Let me encourage you, stop and reflect on who you are. One chosen by this great and glorious God, not for any good in you, but of his own purpose and grace, he chose you and wants you. Here is God's desire and here is God's determination to have you. And nothing, not even the charges that Satan himself might bring against you, can turn his will or his heart away. Therefore, see his regard for you in the face of your trials, the things that you're going through, even in light of your own remaining corruption. Why fear? Who can fault the comfort and assurance that the doctrine of election is designed to give us? But this doctrine also has some moral ramifications. It should have a hold on your conscience. Paul says, uh, look, God's not chosen uh, the, the, the mighty, the noble, etc., but the weak and the foolish, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 
Well, do you have a problem with pride? Recognize you have no reason. God chose the foolish and the base. Who am I? Why would I be chosen? Me. Or Colossians chapter 3. When Paul is writing to the Colossians, he's telling them to put on these various graces. He says in verse uh, 12 of chapter 3, um, let me get there real quick. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, as those chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one. Look who you are. Chosen by God to be his. Therefore, live consistently with this. Or chosen, uh, 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 elect according to the foreknowledge of God in 1 Peter 1, for obedience. 1 Peter 1. You were chosen for obedience. Or uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 4 and 5, uh, chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy before him in love. Paul assumed that this reality would be a motivating argument. See what you are, chosen by God to be his, to be holy, and therefore be that. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. There, that's an argument. Grow in grace. Show you're really his by your growth in grace. Making that call and Obvious to you and to all. Or again, John's language, we love him because he first loved us. Well, brethren, maybe we have questions about election. Maybe some of those questions will never be answered this side of glory. But don't let questions blind us to what is clear. And don't let questions rob us from the relevance of this truth that God himself has revealed, but rather believe this teaching of Scripture chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and use that glorious doctrine by way of praise, by way of adoration, by way of comfort and consolation, and by way of pressing on. Chosen to be holy, then be holy. Give thought to these things. Love him who first loved you. Now, if some, someone would say, yeah, but what if God has not chosen me? Well, how do you know he hasn't? Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners. He himself said, those who come to me, no way will I cast them out. No need to be occupied or troubled with the unknown. What if? It's for you to act on what's known. And this should be known. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. As to election, this has nothing to do with this command. Repent and believe this gospel. Christ died to save sinners. He lives to save sinners. And God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn and live. Turn. Turn. Why will you die? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, what mercy you've shown to sinners like us. Well, grant then that we would respond out of loving you yet more and more. Grant us grace that we should be a people living in light of your grace, your sovereignty, uh, the praise that you forever deserve and will receive. Lord, help us to use this truth, not to argue about it, but rather to sweetly submit to you and use it to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. 
CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.